Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, well, howdy, WCC. It's wonderful to see everybody this morning. What a blessing it is to, to be in God's house and just to sing praises to him. And I was thinking about how, it's, as Greg said, it's been six months since we started, and the Lord has just blessed us so much. So um, I really do want us to have hearts of gratitude and thankfulness for his goodness in, in our individual lives and as our life as a church. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1. We are going to continue our study in this letter from Paul to the church at Colossae. Remember, uh, Colossae is a town in central Turkey in this little area called the Lycus River Valley. There are three little towns there, Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. Paul's never even met these folks. This is a new church plant meeting in a home, and, uh, and yet Paul cares enough to write this letter. And as he normally does, Paul begins letters with theology, with doctrine. And what he has been talking about in chapter 1 is just how awesome Jesus is. That's the bottom line, how awesome Jesus is. He is God. He's fully God and fully man. So Paul sets the tone, and and this passage that we looked at for the last few times I've been preaching, Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, is some of the most exalted language in the Scriptures about our Lord Jesus Christ. It's really awesome. He is... Paul says that he's the creator God and he's the sustainer. He's the, he's the maker and sustainer of the creation and he's the maker and sustainer of the new creation. So we're going to start in, today we're going to cover verses 20 to 23. And the theme of, of the message today is Christ our reconciler or Jesus our reconciler. He is the one who brings about reconciliation. So I'm gonna, let's read through, uh, we're going to pick up in, in 19 and we'll read through 23. And then we'll kind of, we're going to cover just 20 to 23, but it's in the middle of a sentence. So let's start in Colossians 1, verses 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We talked about that last week. Jesus is God. Verse 20. And through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Through him to reconcile. Listen for that word, reconcile. Verse 21, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. And Father, we just simply ask that you would allow us to understand your word, and the Holy Spirit, you take the word and apply it to our hearts for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. All right, so the theme today, as we saw a couple of times, you see that word reconcile. Jesus is our reconciler. What does that mean? What does it mean to reconcile? To reconcile means to take two parties that are at war with each other or that not friends, just not in good relationship, and make them friends. That's the bottom line, to reconcile. So if someone is in a marriage and the husband and wife are having difficulties, 
Reconciliation means to make them friends again. Parties, friends, if they're against each other, having a problem or conflict, to reconcile means to bring them together and to make them friends. And so what we see in verse 20, if we look in verse 20 there, Paul says that through Christ, God's plan was to reconcile to Jesus all things. Everything, he's talking about all of creation, everything in the universe, to reconcile everything to himself. And he says, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So one of the things you see here is that the universe, the creation, needs to be reconciled to God, which is kind of strange. How is it the creation is not friends with God? How is it that the creation needs to be reconciled, needs to be made friends with God? Well, the reason is because creation right now is under a curse. Because of the fall, because of Adam and Eve's sin, God made this world which was good, and now it has, is under this curse, and so it has all these problems that we see. So when God made the world, he made the world good. Now ponder, just can you even imagine a world like this where there is no violence, okay? There's no, viol- there's no animals doing violence to one another. There is no disease. Can you imagine being in a world where there's no disease? There's no decay. There's no death. The, 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 the effects of aging on people or animals, there is no effect of it. It's strength and life and vitality. No disease, no weakness, no problems. That's the way that God has made the world. No decay, not subject to in bondage to decay or corruption. That's the way that God made the world. But since the fall, when Adam and Eve fell, the, the creation now is under a curse from God. And so now we have decay and disease and death and weakness and, and all these terrible things. So, that, so what Paul is saying here in verse 20 is that somehow through the death of Jesus on the cross, God's plan is to reconcile all of creation to himself, to make it the way it was. And it's going to be even better than the way it was because when God makes all things new, there will be no possibility of it becoming terrible again. There will be no possibility of it being cursed again. But right now, what we see is nature, and specifically, I think Paul's talking more about nature here, and I'll I'll talk about that in a second. But nature, creation, is under a curse. We see wildfires, right? Hurricanes, death, disasters, earthquakes, animals doing violence to one another. Not just people. People are the worst, right? But even animals, so as, uh, as Tennyson said, you know, nature is red in tooth and claw. It's just a violent place that we live in. But that's not the way that God has made it. So in Romans 8, 20 and 21, Paul talks more about this. He says that the creation was subjected to futility and that it is in bondage to corruption. That's in Romans 8, and he develops this more. So nature, nature right now, creation, is in bondage to corruption. So... Again, the point of this is reconciliation. Right now, the creation is in some way an enemy against God. It's not the way it's supposed to be. God is God of of beauty and life and order, and nature right now is violence and death and chaos. Not in union, not friends with God. And so, as I said, and Paul says in 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 Colossians 1.20, through Christ, through his death, to reconcile to himself all things. Jesus is the God-man. He's fully God and fully man, and he's the one who is, the plan is for God to reconcile everything in creation through his death. 
Now, when will this reconciliation take place? When will the reconciliation of the entire universe take place? When Jesus returns. When he returns. And in fact, Paul says in Romans 8 there that the creation is waiting in anticipation, groaning in anticipation for the sons of God to be revealed. When God's people are raised with glorified physical bodies, at that time, then the whole earth, the whole universe will be made what it's supposed to be. It'll be reconciled, friends with God. So the universe now is groaning to be friends with God. And that's what's going to happen when Jesus returns. Now, by the way, when, when Paul says that, he's recon- that the plan is to reconcile to, to Christ all things, it's clear from both the context and the rest of Scripture that Paul is not saying that every single person will be saved. Paul's not teaching universal salvation here. In fact, if you look even a few verses down, we'll look at this. Paul even gives a warning to the Colossians. He says, if you continue in the faith. So even in this little section of Scripture, Paul's not saying that every single person is going to be saved. And you see this throughout Scripture, obviously. Jesus says what narrow is the way that leads to salvation, broad is the way that leads to destruction. So Paul is not teaching universal salvation. A lot of people will cite to this passage to, to teach universal salvation. Okay? All right, let's go to verse 21. Now, there's a transition here, and your Bible probably has a paragraph break in 21, because in 15 to 20, we've been hearing about Jesus and what he's doing. Uh, I included 20 and 21 because of this idea of reconciliation, because of the idea of Jesus being the reconciler, not only of the universe, and now Paul's going to say to this church at Colossae that Christ is your reconciler. He is the one who brings about reconciliation between us as God's people and God. We were enemies, and through the blood of Christ, now we are made friends. Okay, so verse 21, Paul says this, And now, I'll, I'll read 21 and 22, And now you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He, Christ, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, before God. Okay, So Paul is saying, he's doing what many of us when we give our testimonies, he's saying once you were like this and now you're like this. Once you were alienated from God, once you were hostile in mind to God, doing evil deeds, but now you're this. So Paul's saying this is what you used to be, and now you are reconciled through Christ's body, through his death. And again, what you see from this is that all people need to be reconciled to God. Nobody is born friends with God. We all need reconciliation through Jesus Christ. We are all born enemies of God. And I'll say this to the kids here. Guys, if you're growing up in a Christian family, that is wonderful. That's a, such, such a blessing. But the fact that you are in a Christian family does not mean that you are reconciled to God. You're not saved by your family. You're saved through your faith in Jesus Christ. So you need reconciliation. So just as I said, the fact that you are in a Christian family does not mean that you are reconciled to God. It doesn't mean that you are friends with God. You need to put your faith in Jesus. You need to love Jesus. And he will bring you. He will bring about reconciliation to the Father. 
Now, one of the things you hear, and it's been going on for hundreds of years now, is this teaching that people are naturally good, right? Naturally reconciled to God. Paul's saying we need it. We were once alienated, I mean strangers, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This is the way that we are naturally. But there is a teaching that is very dominant that says that people are naturally good, they naturally do good things, but it's only that society or culture makes them bad. Okay? Rousseau is a philosopher that used to teach this. Uh, now, we all know this is true, right? Children are naturally good. That's why we have to teach them to be selfish, right? We have to teach them to, to kid, we have to teach our kids to throw temper tantrums. They, they normally want to do good things all the time, but we have to instruct them. We have to say, Johnny, you're sharing your toys too much, you know? Next time, next time be a little bit more selfish. Just hold on to them a little longer. Or, or listen, Susie, you're too joyful and kind. Listen, if something happens that you don't like, why don't you throw a temper tantrum and scream and wail? Do we do that? No, we don't do that. Has anyone ever said that? People that say that children are naturally good obviously have never had children. Right? You've never, you have no idea what you're talking about if, people, if you think that people are born good naturally. We're born into this world, as Paul says when he's talking about to the Colossians in verse 21. We are born alienated from God. We're strangers from God. We're not friends with God. We're hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Okay? This is where we were. And now Paul says, he's, now, now he's going to talk about what Jesus has done in verse 22. He says, Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He says, for you, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, before the Father. There's, there's a strange little phrase there in my ESV says his body of flesh by his death. Body of flesh. Yours may say physical body. Paul, one of the reasons Paul is stressing that Jesus has a physical body is because apparently in the teachings of Colossae, there was this false teaching going around that the physical stuff couldn't be good. That, that if there's anything physical, then it can't be from God. So they were saying that Jesus... It appears that they were saying that Jesus couldn't have had a physical body. He was just an illusion or an appearing. So he couldn't have had this physical body because physical body is bad. Now, we don't really deal too much with that. Um, but that's why Paul uses that odd little phrase, his body of flesh. He's stressing that Jesus is man, that Jesus is fully, fully man. All right. And then Jesus died on the cross. So, so in 22, it says, Christ has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death, okay? Jesus died on the cross. He had a real physical body. He died a real death. And the goal, as I said, is to present you. This is the goal. This is the reason Jesus died on the cross. To present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God, okay? So Jesus died on the cross, and he did this to present us holy, and that means to be set apart from sin, set apart to God, blameless, without sin, above reproach, meaning without accusation. So Jesus has reconciled us. He's made us friends with God in order to, on our day of death or at his return, to present us before the Father as holy. God is holy, which means when we stand before him on the day of judgment, we have to be holy. 
Now, I've just said we are sinful, right? We're hostile. How can we be holy? Well, this is the gospel. This is the good news of how God has done this in Christ. God is going to present his people as holy and spotless before the Father. And it takes place through what Jesus has done. And that's through what Jesus has done on the cross. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Now, before we get to that, I want you to ponder this one. We're talking about reconciliation. We're talking about two parties being at war with one another. In this case, us and God. We are not friends. Why are we not friends? Whose fault is it? It's our fault. We're the wrongdoer. Naturally, we are strangers from God. We do bad things. We, we, the bottom line is, for most people, that they, they, they show their disobedience and their rebellion by just not caring about God at all. They just don't care. When I, before I became a, a believer, I just didn't give a rip about Jesus. I didn't give a rip about God. I didn't care. That in itself showed that I was alienated from God, that I was not friends with God. I needed reconciliation. Now, here's the thing. When you have two parties and you have one wrongdoer, okay, this is the person that's done wrong, and this is the person that has been wronged. Who do we expect to take the initiative to bring about reconciliation? The wrongdoer. We expect the wrongdoer to make things right. And here's the amazing thing about the gospel. We are the wrongdoer. God, we, are, we have been wronging God. We've been treating Jesus terribly. And yet Jesus doesn't wait on us to take the initiative in reconciliation. Jesus does it all. Jesus brings about reconciliation even though we were the ones who did wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. We've been treating him terribly. And yet because of his amazing love, he goes to the cross in our place, suffering the punishment that we deserve to bring about reconciliation. This, I would ask you just to this week ponder that, that fact right there. That we wronged Jesus and his response was to die on the cross for us in order to bring about reconciliation. He's the one that did it all. He brought, made us friends with God by going to the cross. Okay? Now, it, Paul says in verse 22, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. How... Does the death of Jesus bring about the reconciliation of anybody? How does the death of Jesus make us friends with God? What, what does a, a Jewish teacher 2,000 years ago who died a horrible death on a crucifixion, what does that have to do with me living in 2018? How can, how can his death bring about reconciliation, make me friends with God? How could that be? Okay, well, again, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. If you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So we're thinking about reconciliation. And in this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks more. He gives a, a fuller explanation about reconciliation. So 2 Corinthians 5, if you'll look at verse 17. We'll start in verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Again, Paul is talking about reconciliation. Remember, reconcile to God, be made friends with God. And we'll see that right here. Verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And my prayer for some of you, if you are not in Christ, my prayer is God would make you a new creation even now. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 18, as we talked about reconciliation, all of this is from God. 
It's not from us. We don't do it. All this is from God, who through Christ, here it is, reconciled us to himself. Okay, he reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, we can tell other people about how to be reconciled to God. We have this ministry. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And how does he do that? And he explains, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, and I implore anybody here who is not reconciled to God, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Okay? Now, how does this take place? Paul says it right here in this next verse, in verse 21. And if you understand 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, you understand the gospel. You really understand Christianity if you understand these few words in this next verse. Listen to what he says. Verse 21. For our sake, he, okay, the first he is God, the Father. For our sake, the Father made him, that's Jesus. So for our sake, the Father made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus had no sin. The Father made Jesus to be sin or to become sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Okay? Here's what Paul is saying. He is saying that somehow when Jesus was on the cross, he became sin. Or he made Jesus who had no sin to be sin. This is what Paul is saying, that when Jesus was on the cross, imagine all the sins of God's people throughout history, okay? Old Testament, all the sins that that his people have committed up to now, get this, all the sins that we haven't yet committed, but we will commit this next week and next year and whatever. Imagine all this sin, all this filth, all this rebellion like in a huge soup bowl, okay? And you just imagine the filth that is in this. All the sinful thoughts, deeds, words, rebellion, everything is just in this huge soup bowl of vileness and filth and rebellion. Jesus takes that upon himself. He, in a sense, as Paul said, he becomes that. Somehow on the cross, Jesus takes all the filth and sin and rebellion of his people and he brings it into himself. And then when he is on the cross, he receives the punishment for that. So he drains it all. He takes away. If you're in Christ, Jesus has already taken away all your sin upon himself. He became that sin on the cross. That means, if my understanding is correct, that means when Jesus was on the cross, in in God's sight, okay, when Jesus was on the cross, that means Jesus became the most filthy, vile, sinful being ever. Can you imagine? Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Do you see the love that Jesus has for us? He takes all this filth, and when the Father looks at Jesus on the cross, he sees the most filthy, heinous, sinful, wicked, perverted, disgusting being ever when God looks at Jesus on the cross. And why did he do that? Because he loves us. And God is just, and he has to punish that sin. And so so the Father punishes Jesus. There's always this connection between death and sin. The wages of sin is death. Sin and death go together. Jesus takes all this sin, and in so doing, he takes the condemnation, the death away from us, his people. We're now free. There is now no 
condemnation hanging over us. We're free. We're free. We have nothing. Now we are reconciled. God has now taken away our filth and this great exchange that has taken place. We not only have our sins taken away, but we get Jesus' righteousness. It's transferred to us, imputed is the big word, to us by faith. We get Jesus. So now when, when, when the Father looks at us, he sees, as Paul says in Colossians, holy, blameless, all these wonderful things. So Jesus took all this sin and hostility upon himself, and he gives us his holiness, his beauty, his perfection. That's the gospel right there in that one little verse. And that's what Paul's talking about in Colossians 1. It's just grace upon grace upon grace upon love upon more grace upon more love. It's all to us because of Jesus, because of what he has done. And it is awesome. And, and, and the challenge for us as believers is to continuously think about these things. Continuously preach to yourself how awesome Jesus is and what he has done for us on the cross. All right? So Jesus is the one who brings about reconciliation for us by laying down his life for his sheep, by going to the cross and being crucified. Okay? Now let's go to verse 23, back in Colossians. Turn back to Colossians 1. And I've told you all this wonderful things about grace and love and all Jesus has done. We've done nothing. He's done it all. Now that I'm going to throw a little wrench in the, in the cogs of the wheel or whatever. Okay? Wrench in the machine. Look at verse 23 of Colossians 1.23. Paul says, God has done all these things for you. He will present you blameless before the Father, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith. What? <laughs> if indeed you continue in the faith. And he goes on to say, stable and steadfast. If you're stable and steadfast in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And then Paul says, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let me just say one quickly. When Paul says that the the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, I don't think he's saying that every single person in the history of the world has heard the gospel. I I think the picture is this. In this passage, you see that Jesus is the king. In earlier places, you see the kingdom of, of Christ. Well, in, in this time, the king would issue a proclamation, and he would say, I proclaim to every person in my kingdom this. Well, he's sitting in his chamber when he makes the proclamation. How do people actually hear about the proclamation? Through his messengers. And that's what we are as his people. We're messengers. We take the gospel. So I think when Paul's saying that, that, Paul, that God has issued this proclamation of the gospel to every creature, I think he's saying that God has proclaimed it to everybody, and now it's God's people. We are to take it out. Okay? But anyway, back to, so back to 23. All this grace, and now Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith. Okay? Now, doesn't that sound like Paul is saying that it's possible to have genuine faith and to not continue in the faith. Doesn't it sound like? Doesn't it sound like Paul is saying you can have genuine faith, you can believe in Jesus, you can be born again, you can be saved, you can have salvation, and then you cannot continue and fall away and lose your salvation. I will confess that upon first reading, if this is all you knew about the Scriptures, it would sound like that you could lose your salvation. Okay? Now, the problem is there are so many other places in Scripture that clearly, this is an implied statement, that clearly say you can't. So you've got to square these away, okay? 
So we do not, in case you wonder, our church believes that you cannot lose your salvation. A genuine believer whose faith in Jesus Christ cannot lose his or her salvation. So what is Paul saying here when he says, if you continue in the faith? One is this, and it's a, it's a Greek nerd thing, but right before the word if is a little particle that is gamma epsilon. It's, it's a two-letter word, and it's not translated. It's untranslatable in the English. But this little, it, it sticks in there before the if. It goes with the if. And what Paul is saying in that is basically this. This is a paraphrase. He's saying, if you continue in the faith, and I know you will. It's an assumption behind that. And I'll, I'll give you an example. This is Ephesians 4. Paul's talking to the church at Ephesus. This is Ephesians 4.21. He's talking to people that have heard about Jesus. And he says this, But this is not the way you learned it, if indeed you heard about him. If you heard about Jesus. And it's the same little, little particle that goes in front. So in the Greek, Paul's talking to the church at Ephesus, and he says, if you heard about Jesus. Well, he knows that they have. So it's a figure of speech when, when he's using this little particle, okay? Enough with the Greek nerd stuff, all right? That's, the, that's sort of the language thing. So, so Paul, I think, is saying, if you continue in the faith, and I'm sure you will. If you continue in the faith, I know you will, okay? But now let's get to the, the, the scary part, which I think is actually really good. This is typical of the New Testament's language in giving us both confident assurance of salvation and given us, frankly, very scary warnings about falling away. The New Testament does this in many different places. It gives us wonderful assurances saying there is no way if you're in Christ you will ever be cast out. And then the, the New Testament will give us these warnings about falling away. Okay? Dire warnings about falling away. This is, I think this is the scariest one. This is from Hebrews chapter 10. This is, many in the book of Hebrews are talking about this. Listen to this, just scary warning. Hebrews 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, if we go on sinning deliberately, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. What remains? A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's scary. A f- expectation of judgment. If you've heard the truth, he says, but if we go on sinning deliberately, there's, all that remains is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Again, that sounds like, wow, sounds like you could lose your salvation. It's a scary warning. But then we have these assurances like this. This is Philippians 1. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he began a good work in you, you have faith, He began this good work. What will he do? He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Okay? Our our scripture reading today, I don't know if you caught it, in John 6. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, This is the will of him who sent me, the Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Jesus says, I will lose not a single one who God has given me. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should what? Should have eternal life with the possibility of losing? No. Should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. I will not lose a single one, Jesus says. So you've got these clear statements that Jesus says. Another place in John 10. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. 
So all these clear statements that if you have genuine faith in Jesus, you will be saved. There's no possibility of losing your salvation. Okay? At the same time, we have the scary warnings like Colossians 1, if indeed you continue in the faith. Now, here's the thing. Usually people like one or the other. <laughs> Usually people like, they may like assurances because they like the comfort of assurances and they don't want to hear the warnings. Okay? But then there are other people who like the warnings because they don't want people to be complacent and they're not too crazy about the assurances. But God is so smart. And so caring, he gives us both. And as an individual, I want to hear and believe both. As a church, I want us to hear both the assurances and the warnings. I think they're very, very healthy. I think both are very, very healthy because this is the whole counsel of God. And I think the warnings are there for us to keep us from getting complacent. If you're a believer, picture your life in the future at some point. Use your imagination and picture yourself walking away from Jesus, not caring at all about Jesus, sinning, walking away from the church, living in wickedness, just just not caring at all, living that life. Just see yourself doing that. Okay, Can you see yourself doing that? Try to see yourself doing it. I'm asking you to work. If you're a believer and you can see yourself doing that, it's terrifying. It's very scary. And I think God wants us to see that. Because when we say, if I could do that, if I could walk away and live in rebellion against Jesus, that scares me. That keeps me from getting complacent. And what that makes me want to do is run to Jesus even more and hold on to him even more. So I think God gives us these warnings to keep us from being complacent. I think God gives us these warnings to wake us up, too. And I think there are probably non-Christians who hear these scary warnings, and God uses his word to wake them up, to allow them to come to faith in Jesus. And also this, this this is very important. God uses the warnings as a means of preserving us. God actually uses the warnings to preserve us. And it's a strange way in God's providence. I'll give you an example. In Acts chapter 27, you don't need to turn them. In Acts chapter 27, there's a shipwreck. Paul is on a ship, big ship, and they're in like this hurricane force winds, okay? Bad storm, and it goes on week after week. And they're on this huge ship, and they all think they're going to die. Well, God sends an angel to Paul, and he says, Paul, every single person on this ship is going to live. Guaranteed. Everybody's going to live. They're all going to be saved. Salvation is going to come to all these people on this ship. Guaranteed, no matter how bad it looks. Okay? Well, this go, Paul tells everybody. After a few more days of this, though, of, the, of this hurricane force storm, a few soldiers try to get in this boat, lifeboat, and sneak away because there's not very many lifeboats. And they want to get in the lifeboat because they're convinced the ship is going to crash. And Paul hears about it and he tells the commander of the, the ship, he says, if they get in that boat, they're going to perish. It's a warning. If they do this, they're going to perish, okay? What do they do? They get out of the boat. They get back on the ship. They cut the little boats loose, and they're saved. So, so God said, you, I hope you see the connection. God said, everybody here will be saved. But one of the ways that he saved everybody, one of the ways that he preserved everybody was the warning, don't leave the ship. In, the, in other words, in God's providence, he uses these warnings in the same way with us. We're on the ship of Jesus. We're saved. We're guaranteed to be saved. 
But he uses these warnings, better not get away from that ship. Otherwise, you're going to perish. That's not possible for us to perish, but the warnings are there to, to, as a, as, to be used by God as a means of preserving our faith. So people with genuine faith will persevere to the end. And one of the ways that God does, does this to ensure that this will happen is these warnings. So that's why he says this word, if you continue. Okay, so the warnings are serious. I want us to take them seriously. The warnings are scary, but I think they're very good for us. Keep us from being complacent. And also, you know, if if someone actually walks away from the faith, what it shows is they never had genuine faith to begin with. John says that in 1 John. They went out from us because they were not actually one of us. They were not actually genuine faithful people because they went out and the fact that they went out shows that they were not actually one of us they didn't have genuine faith okay so those who always see their need for christ those who see how amazing jesus's cross is they'll not only love and trust in jesus right now they will continue to love and trust in jesus until the end they simply can't fall away it's just not possible let me close with this from words from our lord um, and this is directed to people who realize that you do not yet belong to Jesus. And really, my prayer is that you will hear Jesus' words. You'll hear Jesus speak to you now. And it may be to some of you children that you'll hear Jesus say this. Listen, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My prayer is that you'll hear that. Jesus had laid down his life for his sheep. My prayer is for those who do know that we're his sheep, that we would be encouraged by this, and for those who do not yet know that they belong to him. And I'm convinced that Jesus has sheep around us in our families, in our community, in our neighborhood. Jesus has sheep who have not yet heard his voice. And who knows, maybe God would use us to bring this message of reconciliation to them. And they would hear Jesus speak to them and they would turn. Maybe you need to turn to him in faith and live your life for him. And he will never let you perish. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we love you and praise you, Lord. Thank you for this ministry of reconciliation. Thank you for Jesus, that you have made reconciliation for your people. Thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross and you took upon yourself all the filth and sin of your people. And in exchange, you give us your beauty and righteousness and perfection. Thank you for that, Jesus. You did not have to do that. And and when I think about these things... I'm just overwhelmed. We are overwhelmed. We think about them in the right way. That we were the wrongdoer. You were the one we wronged, and yet you were the one who sacrificed to make reconciliation. So we praise you and love you. May you be exalted in our lives. And Lord, also I pray for those warnings, that we would hear those warnings, and that someone here today would hear the warning and not be complacent and turn to you in faith. And for those of us who do have faith, that we would hear these warnings and kind of wake up and realize we need to be a little bit more serious about our relationship with you. And we need to guard our relationship with you and treasure it and live for you instead of ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.